Let me just pause for a moment and say this. Another thing that we have been praying for fervently and seeking out opportunities about is a Sunday morning worship location. I hear from many of you as well. When are we going to be Sunday morning? Right? Sunday evening, it's fine. It's cheap. It's, these people at North Central have been excellent to us. Incredibly hospitable. They've given us everything that we need. Right? We've been able to save. It's been a wonderful season for us here. But ultimately, to reach people that don't know Christ, as some of us have even shared stories about inviting people that don't know Jesus, right, to church them saying, what time is your service? And then saying 5.30 Sunday evening, and them saying, oh, let us know when you're Sunday morning. It's just not missionally helpful for the time that we are. Now, is that a complaint? Absolutely not. What is it about? It's about reaching people, having access to the lives of people. So we've been praying for that. For the sake of the people we're trying to reach and for our own sake. Right? Ultimately, for the sake of God's glory in us and through us in these people's lives. So really, what I'm bringing to you now is simply a call to continued prayer. Because I believe God's answering those prayers. But He's calling us to more prayer. Right? To trust Him. Um, The last couple weeks there has come to us without really any searching, really, of late. Summer, we've been kind of focusing on the essentials and all that, but basically got a text from Mr. Bissell about a a building actually not too far from here. Uh, About two left turns. Well, two lefts and a right. And uh, you're there. And uh, basically, uh, what we're trying to do now is basically place this at the feet of God. Okay, it's something that we have been praying for and trusting God to provide for us. And this may well be a wonderful opportunity for our congregation. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. And so please be praying for wisdom for your leaders. And uh, just know as well as, as the process unfolds that you'll have opportunity to engage it and see it. We want you to see it and get excited about it, if it's the Lord's will. We want you to engage in that process. And we value your opinion greatly. And so simply put, as we're praying, ultimately, that God would give us opportunities to reach people, that He would give us wisdom as to whether or not this location is indeed a gift from the Lord. Can we do that together? Can we seek the Lord that He would give us opportunity to reach people and that one of those ways would by giving us wisdom in reference to this building? Can we do that? I think that's a good thing. right? We need God. We can't do these things or, or make decisions without His wisdom. And collectively, we trust that the Spirit of God will move in all of our hearts to see it for what it is. Right? I asked the question, is a building detrimental to the mission? Well, it could be, right? If it's all about the building, it could be detrimental to the mission. Well, is the building instrumental to the mission? Well, no, the people are. Right? The building's not instrumental to the mission. The people of God are instrumental to the mission. Right? We've been on mission without a building, right? 
So the people of God don't need a building per se. We're on mission. But at the very same time, we all know that while right, the, God's, the church is not a building, I look at my family, I say, well, my family is not my house. There's something uh, about, though, the home that we have that gives our family meaning and context. Right? That, that's where it takes place. And so our heart would be is that as we seek the Lord for this, whatever situation or whatever uh, location God provides, that it would simply be put in its proper context, right? That it's simply a tool for us to do what we do and in the presence of, in the, in the lives of people. Much more can be said about that, but nonetheless, uh, let's pray. So let's pray together even now before I start the message. Father, we come before you and we just thank you for all that you are and all you're doing in our midst. And uh, Lord, we come together uh, and bow our knees and we, we, we bow our heads in full trust and surrender that you are in fact sovereign over all, that you are leading your people, uh, and that you are providing for every need that we have to, to live out the mission that you've called us to. So Lord, in full confidence, we ask that you lead us. Like a shepherd, lead us. Or we need you. We're dependent. If we were left to our own devices in our own ways, we would be fools and make all sorts of, sorts of ridiculous decisions that don't make any divine sense. And so we look to you and we ask that you would unite us and give us wisdom and Lord, and give us faith as we move forward. And whatever the case may be, Lord, may we be postured and ready and available to make any and all sacrifices that are necessary to be obedient to you, no matter how inconvenient or no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for your patience in those regards. So when I was about four or five years old, uh, I was hanging out at Coquina Beach. Now, Coquina Beach is down south because we don't really do beaches all that well up here. So I'm hanging out four or five years old in Florida just south of, of the Sarasota-Bradington area. Okay, anybody recognize that area at all? Okay, my great-grandmother had a place down there, and so my family, my mom was very close to my great-grandmother. Uh, great we would go down there all the time, and we would always go to Coquina Beach. Okay, and so one day, I'm four or five years old, it's really hot, and I'm getting really hungry. And so, the, being the great mother uh, that she was when I threw my temper tantrum that I needed something to eat, she walked to the concession stand with me, and my Aunt Pam actually was there as well. And so we go up to the concession stand, and of course, I'm four or five years old. What are really the options? It's hamburger or hot dog. Well, today I wanted a hot dog. It's just what I wanted. And I wanted french fries with it. I wanted a hot dog, and I wanted french fries. And so my mom uh, had... Uh, me and Aunt Pam sit down and wait. She went to go get the food. She came back with the hot dog and the french fries. Who's getting excited about hot dogs and french fries? She comes back with the hot dog and the french fries. And she sets down the hot dog and the french fries with the ketchup and all that, but she's got to go back to get the drinks. So she goes back to get the drinks, and I'm sitting there with the ketchup, and I put the ketchup on, and I grab the hot dog, and I'm like, this, you know, hallelujah's playing in the background, Right? Right, And it's like, this is the greatest moment of my life. 
And out of nowhere, no joke, out of nowhere, a seagull swoops down from some sort of tree, I don't know what it was, and snags the hot dog right out of the bun, no joke. I was mad. I was shocked too. But I was mad. I think I actually have memory of actually trying to run it down. Um, I was shocked and furious. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The point was my lunch was lifted. You see, every night when Evelyn was two, three, she would always ask me, Dad, tell me a story when I was a little boy. And I don't remember what happened when I was a little boy. That's the only one I remember. And so I would tell her it a lot. And she loved it. And now Annika as well, she doesn't say, tell me a story when you're a little boy. You know what she says? Tell me the story about the seagull eating your hot dog. <laughs> Every single night. Tell me the story about the seagull. And so me being lazy and it's 9 o'clock, I actually make her tell me the story now. Uh, but we love stories, don't we? We love them. They grab us. They get our attention. They, they get at our emotions. We love stories. I think my kids ask me to tell them a story because they want to connect with their past a little bit, don't they? They want to engage my past because my past is somehow connected to who they are. It's, it's shaping their identity. They want to get to know me, but at the same time, they're, they're engaging their own history. And so stories about the past is, is, is really a, a time where we can engage history that shapes our identity as a people. And so... Um, today, in short form, nonetheless, we begin a series called The Story of God. Okay? And that's, you say, well, what do you mean by the story of God? That's it. You know, God's story. Taking a look back, and obviously, we're, as people who believe in the Bible, we're going we're gonna to look at the Scriptures to see about the story, the story of God. I mean, we're really good about telling our own stories, but often as People on mission in these communities, when we have the opportunity to tell the story of God, we fall flat without words, don't we? We don't know what to say. We don't know where to start. We don't know what to emphasize. We can't remember the details. We get caught kind of backing up on our heels. And so our hope is, is to give you four weeks the story of God in such a way that not only can we engage it and maybe place ourselves in it, right? Because this becomes the, the defining story of our lives. Not just the story of God, but a story that defines who we are as a people. And as we do that, as we place ourselves into that story, we connect with our identity as we connect with the very identity of God. We can now know it in such a way to tell it. To tell it so that people can hear it. There are so many stories out there that grab at the heart and define reality in our world, isn't there? But the one that needs to be heard is the story of God. Tonight, we begin. But where do you start? Where do you start? with such a series, especially a, a four-week series called The Story of God. Where do you start? One might say Genesis 1. 
right? We'll just start in the beginning. Well, that would be all too easy and logical. So tonight, we're going to start actually in the second book of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, open it up. Exodus chapter 3. Verses 13 through 15. We're going to read a number of texts and I'm going to try to give context uh, to some of these things as well. But basically, uh, this is the book of Exodus. And to be just kind of uh, giving you insight into what's coming, we're going to be starting Exodus, uh, the whole book. We're going to be preaching through it in partnership with Missio as of September 28th. So we're kind of leaving the New Testament epistle, going into the Old Testament narrative. So we're excited about that. So you're getting somewhat of a, a little bit of a preview as we, as we begin here tonight. Basically, uh, uh, the, the Israelites uh, uh, had found themselves in Egypt, right? And uh, then all of a sudden, Joseph dies, and uh, the, 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 the Israelites are growing in number and stature, their health. They're just blessed by God. Right? As Genesis 12 said, God said in Genesis 12 they would be. But then all those people that knew them and Joseph, they all died. And a Pharaoh rose up and enslaved them. This is the abridged edition. And then they got really nervous and they started to uh, basically uh, say, let the daughters live. The Pharaoh said the Hebrew daughters let them live. But the sons, you know, get rid of them. And so... Exodus tells a story about this little boy Moses who was put in a basket and to be saved and, and to be kind of hidden from. Uh, and finally, she, he ends up in Pharaoh's house. But then, basically, he re-identifies he, uh, re, uh, himself with the Hebrews and kills some guy and then has to flee. He flees Egypt. And he finds himself being a shepherd and under-shepherd for Jethro. And so we pick up the story here where Moses is content. Chapter 2 talks about he's just content, right? He had fled Egypt and he's safe. He doesn't have to deal with that anymore. So he's fled Egypt. He finds himself serving Jethro and he's content to just serve Jethro. He's got a wife and a family and he's just a shepherd. He's on his own. He's secure, he's safe, he doesn't have to deal with all those problems in Egypt. And in the midst of that contentment, God shows up in his life, doesn't he? In the midst of that contentment, when we're just comfortable and secure, God shows up. I'm sure that's happened in many of your lives. When you're just content to be doing something, God shows up and just messes with the whole thing. And brings chaos and disorder and calls you to something that you really don't want to do given your own uh, human uh, desires. And so he shows up in a burning bush. He calls to Moses. He says he's seen the affliction. He's heard their cry, right? And now he's going to send Moses. Right? He's going he's to send Moses to tell Pharaoh to set his people free. Are you guys tracking with me? And so Moses' first question is, who am I? You know, you can't send me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, um, qualified for this. And now we see here that Moses wants to know who God is. And listen uh, to what he says in Exodus 3. 
Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses asks God who he is. Who should I tell them? He wants to know God's name. And now today, you know, I named my son Silas. To this day, I have no idea what that name means. Right? We don't, we don't necessarily name children because of the meaning anymore. Some do, some don't. Uh, but we see here, and especially in this culture, that the name wasn't just something uh, to be called. It was essence. It said who you were, who you are. And so when Moses is asking God to know his name, who are you, he's saying, tell me your essence. Reveal your nature to me. Tell me who you are, not just in name only. And God responds with the word Yahweh. It's, that, it's, the, it's the divine name, right? We've heard that possibly before. And that word, the divine name, comes from the verb to be. It's a very mysterious word. One that there's a lot of discussion about how exactly that needs to be translated. Okay? It's a very mysterious name. But God in that very mysterious word, in that mysterious name, is conveying who He is. And I like the way uh, one preacher, uh, Philip Riken, uh, defines it as I was doing some reading on it. He said, His special name means something like, He who is. So when, when Moses heard those words, God saying, I am, right? He who is. He's saying, I am the one, capital O, the one who is. In his name, we also see that he has no past, he has no future, but only an eternal present. I am. I'm the God who is. I always have been. I always will be. I live eternally existent. There's no starting point with me. There's no ending point. He says, God is the one who always is. He is who He is. He has always been who He is, and He will always be who He is. And that's hard for us to wrestle with because we can remember our birth date, our starting point. And we even see on, on tombstones, as, as we were looking at Ancestry.com today, of way back, in, 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 uh, in the Collins family, that's my grandma's side. You see a start date and an end date. But what Moses is interacting with is the God who is. When he says, I am, tell him I am sent you. 
He's saying, tell them that the one who always was, the one who always is, the one who always will be, the God of the universe, who's eternally existent, tell them, He sent you. And that comes, again, to a, to a pluralistic society, right, to where there's a ton of gods to be believed in. This one God has declared Himself to be the, exist, the eternally existent one. No starting point, no ending point. And so I think that gives us context, at least a little bit, to understand the words of Genesis 1 that says, in the beginning, God. Right Before there was anything here, before anything that we see here, when it was just emptiness and null and void, what God is. God existed. God always was. Before anything here, God is. Moses, again, not to pick on him tonight, but Moses, again, reinforces this in Psalm 90. He's the author of Psalm 90. Right? He says this. He says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Psalm 90, verse 1. Before the mountains were brought forth, before creation, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I want you to see that last phrase. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The story of God starts with the knowledge and the reality that there is a God. And He always has been God. Right? That from everlasting to everlasting, it's, it's a Hebrew phrase that simply means from antiquity that way into the past, if that's the right way for you, and from antiquity that, or into the future that way, He is eternally present. Right? That, that that's why Moses is praising Him in Psalm 90. Because He's praising the eternally existent God who has no uh, starting point, no ending point. I like the way Barnes explains this. He says, He was always, He ever will be, God. The God, the true God, the only God, the unchangeable God, at any period in the past, he existed with all the attributes essential to deity. At any period in the future, He will still exist unchanged with all the attributes of deity. The mind cannot take in a grander thought than there, that there is one eternal, immutable being. It's hard for us to engage that. Because we're so temporal. We have to begin with the reality of God when we tell the story. Right? When, when others engage our convictions that explain and define human history, we have to start with a God that exists. One that is unchanging and eternal. But despite that, what the Bible teaches, many, pimply, uh, many people simply reject the idea of God, don't they? You know these people. 
You talk to these people all the time. You interact with them on a daily basis. Atheists, agnostics, with the, with the writings of Richard Dawkins, uh, some other guys as well that are kind of following around this no atheist uh, camp of philosophers and writers. People have given up on the idea that there's God. And if there is a God, He's at the very least completely unknowable. Right? You interact with these people. It's a day and age where post-scientific uh, revolution, where, where Marxism and Darwinism, right? and then finally, was it Nietzsche who said God is dead? Right? We're living in the wake of that big push. That big wave, if you will. People think that there's no empirical evidence in their, in their mind. You, you can't see God. I, I get that from my children. Or how do we believe in Jesus? We don't see Him. You get that all the time. I'll believe it if I see it. There's inconsistencies in so many different belief systems. And really, they, their faith is in science, right? Science explains everything. God is unnecessary when we can explain everything with scientific method. What about the problem of evil and suffering in the world? If there was a God, wouldn't He deal with that? Especially if He's good and loving and benevolent? The problem of evil and suffering in their mind says that there must not be a good God. And for so many, as I believe it was Jesse the Body Ventura, yes, he did get a quote tonight, uh, said, right, religion is a crutch for needy people. Right? So this idea that there's no real God, it's all a social fabrication. And that's the story that's being told. The social fabrication, an emotional uh, release for those who are emotionally needy. And yet we see that it's not just Moses that interacts with the eternal existent God, but David as well, who has a personal encounter with God. And he says in Psalm 14, verse 1, which many of you may have memorized, right? The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Scripture, through the mouth and with the pen of David, declares that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It would seem like human worldly wisdom based on some of those things that there is no God. But again, we see that God has revealed Himself and our conviction is that that the Scriptures tell us who He is, His very name, and reveal to us that God is eternally existent. What are the implications of that, though, for us? What's the implication? The practical 9 to 5, 24, 7, 3, 6 to 5 implication of the existence of God. What difference does it make? Some people would even argue today, right, that okay, there may be a God, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect life. It doesn't make an impact on me. That is, 
There may be a story of God out there, but it doesn't do anything to transform or change or intersect with my life, my story. But the existence of God does have massive implication to our lives and our story. If there is a God, especially the God who is, is the same one that the God who makes and creates us, which Tim is going to talk about next week, we know that the existence of God gives us context for our origin, where we came from, our source. Right? That's important to us. We ask it all the time. Where are you from? Why does that matter? Because origin shapes identity. Origin shapes who we are. It gives context to life. It explains who we are. And so if a God exists, it gives us, at the very least, origin. It gives us context for that. There's no room for accidental existence if there's God. No room for that. What about the authority issue? If there's a God who is and is eternally existing and rules and reigns over His creation, if that's true, do we not have an authority now that we are responsible to submit to? And now it gets really uncomfortable because we don't like authority. We do indeed live in an anti-authority age where we are our own authority. But really, we see that if God really exists, the God who is exists, that there's no room for an autonomous existence. That is, I'm on my own, doing my own thing for my own sake. That we're always living and breathing and, and acting and deciding and thinking and having attitudes and motives that are all under the umbrella of the God who exists. That we have authority and we're accountable to that authority. To know that there's a God says that we have purpose and meaning. That there's no room for selfish existence, right? There's a life that God has for us that's all about servitude. It's not about us. Man, is that not culture's confession today? It's all about me. There's t-shirts printed that people actually wear that say it's all about me. And yet the existence of God, the implication of just the fact that He exists, says it's all about Him. It's not about you at all. That the purpose and meaning of life is to serve Him, and as He has commanded, serve others. You're kind of low on the totem pole. And I love this. I think by implication... That the reality of the eternally existent God who is gives us hope. Right? Hope. There's no hope in a godless world. There's no way to argue for that. There's no hope in a godless world. But there is a God. And so we have hope. Right? There's, we have hope that, that there is a future that, 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 that has blessing uh, in front of us. Right? That God has a plan and He's working all of those things. And again, I'm not getting ahead in the story, but there's hope if there's God. That this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God gives us 
hope in the midst of our human predicament. Yes, suffering and evil do exist, but God is, therefore we have hope in the midst of it. There's no need for a hopeless existence. The story of God has no starting point, really. Right? God is eternally existent. Right? As revealed in Scripture, we see that His very name declares it from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Is that your confession? Do you believe that? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You know, I didn't write this down in my notes, but I'm going here for a moment. Some of you are dealing with some temporal struggles. And they're intense. Some of you are living in disappointment. Some of you are dealing with grief, loss, uh, frustration at work. Relational pain, a lot of bitterness, anger in your hearts. Maybe marriage isn't so hot. Maybe financial issues can't seem to pull out of debt. Whatever issues there are. Maybe besetting sins that you can't seem to, to get rid of that keep gnawing at your feet and you're still dragging around that, 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 that bowling ball that's attached to the leg. Right? This, whatever the case may be. You be maybe in the midst of temporal chaos and disaster. And in the midst of that mess, you may be saying, God, where are you? Are you real? Do you really exist? Or are you a figment of my imagination? Do you not hear my prayers, Lord? Because they seem like they're bouncing off the wall. Some of you may be going through some very challenging, gut-wrenching, difficult circumstances in the present. And then you hear those words. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Friends, our eternal God, who made the heavens and the earth, right, with His spoken word, has the power, the mercy, and the grace to invade our temporal struggle with His eternal nature and apply His mercy and grace to it. He's sufficient. He's eternal. He's sufficient for the temporal. I pray that ministers to your heart tonight. That in the midst of the difficulty, you can hold on and cling to and never let go of the God who is. But Scripture has more to say about the God who is. Right? We know His name. We know His nature. We know His, 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 uh, His existence is revealed in Scripture. But what of His essence? Right? The story goes on. Throughout the scriptures. Right, we see that God is progressively revealing himself through the pages of the Old Testament. And he speaks to David about one who is to come, right, who will be the Son of God. 
And he speaks to Isaiah, who prophesies that the servant of the Lord would die on behalf of the people. Right? That the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all on him. That even uh, the book of Daniel talks about the Son of Man who would come and rule and reign forever. This, this God figure revealed progressively. We're getting clues along the way, chapter by chapter in the story of God. And that we finally see that there, there's great clarity that comes in John chapter 1. That the eternally existent one is revealing himself much more clearly and personally in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see the beginning of what is really, or at least the continuation, of this idea of the Trinity. That the God who is exists in Trinity. He exists as Trinity. There is one God eternally existing in three persons. If you go to John chapter 1 with me, You'll see what I mean. John chapter 1 says this, verse 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we're talking about the Word, now we're talking about a person. So the Word is a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Somebody says you can't see God. Say yes you can. You just can't see him right now. Because he's not here. You can see God. And we see him in the person of Jesus. He's the word made flesh. Who dwelt among us. The glory that we were able to see. The same glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we begin to see here this idea that this Jesus born into the world is the Word. That the Word is a person. And that there are, at the very least here, two persons revealed clearly in this one God that we worship. And as we'll see, there's a third. John 8.58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, right? Jesus, 30-year-old Jesus, in human terms, says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, remember where Abraham was, way back in Genesis, before Abraham was, he uses those words again, I am. He didn't use those words for, uh, by accident or by coincidence. He used them on purpose to convey that this Jesus is the same God Previous to Yahweh or previous to Abraham, that was there. That Jesus as well is eternally existent, just in human form in this time. Jesus says later in Revelation chapter 1, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Right? That's, he's the first and the last. Right? He's, he has no beginning, no end. The story of God starts with Him, which never had a starting point. The story of God continues in and through Him. The story of God, right, and I know I'm jumping ahead, finds its fulfillment and its consummation in Him. He goes on to say later in verse 18 of Revelation 1, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. 
This is Christ. Right? There's, there's God the Father, and there's God the Son, Jesus Christ. So you see that we get a greater sense of clarity here about the essence, the nature of God. We believe in the God of the Bible, which has been revealed as a triune God. One God, three persons, each person is fully God. Right? That's, that's Wayne Grudem for you. That's the way he breaks it down. It's a helpful way, I think, to understand our God. Right? There's one God. He exists in three persons, and each person is fully God. Some of you may have seen illustrations out there or heard illustrations. How do you make sense of one God that exists in three persons? Right? You've heard the, 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 the water. Come on, what are the three phases of water, people? Water, ice, vapor. Trinity, see? All right? Well, that break falls apart pretty soon. How about the three uh, uh, leaves of the shamrock? All right? Trinity. Right? Or the, or the wheel with the spokes, God at the center. We always look at that and go, I don't get it. Right? Well, that just shows the glory, the mystery, the nature of God that we can't seem to get our minds around. No human illustration can really convey perfectly what is only illustrated in and of Himself, His Trinity. Right? We can't grasp that to a level that it does it justice. But Jesus declares in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. What a declaration. Jesus claims to be one with the Father. Jesus claims to have existed previous to Abraham. An offensive statement for sure to those who heard it. But also one that reveals His nature. Right? The God who is, is the God who is Trinity. Right? How about God the Holy Spirit? The one that always gets forgotten and left out, right? right? The, the Holy Spirit, present and active in creation, Genesis 1-2, right? The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God is the one that, that searches the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So when we look at Scripture, we see that progressively the story unfolds and reveals the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. But the God who is from everlasting to everlasting is no one less, no one more than God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in the triune God. Again, if you want to take a look at this later, we see it in the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3. Right? That when Jesus is baptized, right, He comes out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove. The Father's voice is spoken, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Spirit in His baptism. How about the Great Commission? Right? Is this a Scripture shower? Good. That's what we need. Right? You're getting a lot of Scripture here to show you this is the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture. Right? right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. 
right? This is the God who is. This God was living in self-knowledge and self-enjoyment before creation even happened. That's a profound thing to just think about. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, asks that question. He says, what was God doing before creation? How would you answer that question? What was God doing before creation? Everyone's like, we have no idea, because we weren't there. Based on who He is, eternally existent, right? Father, Son, Spirit. Based on the other statement of Scripture that says God is love, right? He's essentially love. That makes sense out of that. It makes sense uh, uh, to say God is love when He's able to live in knowledge, self-knowledge and self-enjoyment prior to anything created. In fact, if He needed us to be loving, then He would no longer be right, the self-existent one. He would need us to be something. Does that make any sense to you? The God who is and has eternally existed as Trinity is the one who lived in self-knowledge and self-enjoyment prior to anything even being made. That's Jonathan Edwards, by the way, before I get called out for plagiarism these days. That's Jonathan Edwards. He's essentially one of self-knowledge and self-enjoyment. And so when we talk about creation, redemption, and all those themes which are coming, that's a big part of it, right? God is, is sharing his self-knowledge and self-enjoyment. Anyway, read the book, Agree or Disagree. The God who is as Trinity is no peripheral conviction. It's not secondary. You say, well, that's not really a main part of the story. This isn't, see, but why is he emphasizing this? It, it doesn't seem to fit. Because this is no secondary conviction. This is the very foundation on which we build our lives and our hope. Right? So the story of God has no starting point, but it does have a reference point. The triune God is revealed in Scripture. That's our God. And He is. Before He creates, before He saves, before He consummates His kingdom, God simply is. And that's enough for us to start with. And I think the implication for us that He is as Trinity is an important one, especially for the agnostic. God is personal. He's Father, Son, Spirit. He's not an impersonal deity. He is personal, and therefore, God is knowable. God is love, and therefore, He is also lovable. Right? He's knowable, but He's lovable. Self-knowledge, self-joy, shared. And I think 
with so many temporal things out there that we get excited about, so many fads, the new hip thing that we're all in on, right? I think that we can see the credibility of our God who is above time, who exists outside of time as humans know it. That He's no fad. Right? He's not uh, uh, on the good side or bad side given popularity uh, percentages. Right? He's the God who is. Regardless of how we view Him and respond to Him. He just simply is. And He is beyond time. He's beyond the temporal. He's not subject to human fad. He's therefore credible. We can count on Him. We can trust Him. Because He is eternally existent as the Trinity. You can know God, you can love God, and you can trust God. Because God is. And He is Trinity. Let's pray. Our Lord, we confess to You that often we confess with our mouths that You are God and so often we do not live in the implications of that. We confess our sin of of selfishness and our refusal to serve. We confess our sin that we often with our lives show skepticism and a lack of faith. Lord, I pray that you would, you have tonight revealed yourself through Scripture, albeit a snapshot, to all of us here. That in the midst of our temporal existence here on earth, that your eternal nature, that your very name, your very being, would pierce us tonight. That in the midst of our struggle, that we can cling to you and hold on to you. And if there's anyone here tonight that for the first time says, yeah, I believe that there is a God. And now I know who he is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And he has always eternally been such. I pray that you would draw them tonight. That they would see the, the hope of salvation. The hope that comes with knowledge worship of you Lord may we be a people that tell a story in our communities that you are real not just with our words but with our actions and may we be a people that cling to your eternal nature no matter how difficult the temporal is may we respond even now this temporal moment with entering into that eternal song. Worthy are you, O God, was and is and is to come. In Christ's name.